0: This episode of The Hour on the Renewal Ministries Podcast Network is brought to you by ID, standing for Intentional Disciples. We are an outreach of Renewal Ministries dedicated to helping young adults, people in their 20s, 30s, married, single, with or without kids, become intentional disciples of Jesus Christ. We want to help people meet Jesus, fall in love with Him, and begin to share Him with others. If you'd like more information about ID, you can go to intentionaldisciples.com. Don't pay too close attention to our website, though. It's under construction. We're kind of actively rebranding and doing some new things, so don't judge us by our website. But if you want a more accurate portrayal of what we're doing, you can go to YouTube, search Intentional Disciples. On Instagram, you can search Intentional Disciples. Or go to spiritfilledleadership.com, which is one of our kind of significant offerings right now to help young adults and anyone, really live as spirit-filled leaders. Okay, today on the podcast, I'm pulling in a segment from something we just did through ID called the Still Small Voice Challenge. It was a five-day challenge to help people ignore the noise and hear the voice of God. Each day for about an hour in the middle of the day, we had a different guest talking about some element of hearing God's voice. And then they had a daily activation, everyone who participated to kind of put into practice whatever it is they learned uh, during the interview. And we had... Over 3,000 people sign up, and thousands of people go through this five day challenge with us. And the day one started things off great with Father John Burns. He's the Associate Director of Vocations in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, just an incredible man of God, incredible priest. And so I thought I would pull the audio from that day, day one of the Still Small Voice Challenge, and share it with all of you. So, this is Father John and I talking about what it means to hear the father's voice, what it means to encounter and listen for the still small voice and how it can transform our life. then I close the pod with an inspiring word from the book of Hebrews. So coming up next, Father John Burns and then a little inspiring word at the end. But first, as always, my friend, Connor Flanagan. Further ado, we're gonna dive right in. Today's topic is the still small voice, starting the week off strong with Father John Burns. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. He wears a lot of hats for them, but he's uh part of the vocations department and has the great honor of providing retreats and formation experiences for religious communities all over the world. And he is, as we began to kind of unpack what we wanted to do for this challenge. He was one of the men that immediately came to mind as somebody who's not just a, somebody who's knowledgeable theologically about the Father's voice, but living in it every day. So, Father John, welcome to the Still Small Voice Challenge. Hey,
1: what's up, Pete? How are you, everybody?
0: I'm doing well. We're doing well, and uh, we're excited that you're with us today. You ready to do this for the next, you know, 35, 40 minutes, see what we can talk about the Father's voice? I know it's near and dear to your heart.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, I'm ready. This is uh, such a good topic. Such great. great topic. Yeah.
0: Well, so. let's start here. Father John, uh, does God speak to us? And um, how do you know that he's speaking to us?
1: Yeah, isn't that, isn't that the question, right? Like, um, <laughs> I do vocations work. One of, the, one of the most kind of full-time occupations of my life is is working with people who are trying to figure out God's plan for their lives, both vocationally, but also just in general. And this is like, always the question that we carry. It's like, I I don't know what to do, and I want to hear God's voice. And I, I don't know if God is speaking or how do I know if it's God's voice, my voice, the voice of the world. And uh, yeah, it's just a real puzzle that we all carry because we know like we have the scriptures and we know, especially biblically, we have all these great moments where where God speaks. He speaks a word to the prophets in, in the person of Christ. He's speaking constantly. And so we try to like translate that onto our lives. Like, OK, God, you speak a lot throughout history why why don't I hear your voice that way? Or or how do I learn to listen to your voice when I'm trying to figure out what to do here and now? So to your question, yeah, the Lord does speak always. The dilemma that we face is that it's just typically not in the way we want or expect or 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 the way that we kind of search out and almost maybe sometimes demand. Like sometimes we go to God with a question, we're like, I need to know, I'll do whatever you want, just give me an answer. And typically, God sort of eludes that that logic, or doesn't come to us the way we expect, which demands of us an awful lot of creativity and openness and willingness to to really approach the whole question of prayer quite differently when we seek that still small voice.
0: Yeah, isn't it interesting that uh, you read the scriptures and it's full of God speaking, but almost in every in every way, it's different than the person was expecting. So whether that's Moses, Abraham, you literally go through all the prophets through all the way through the New Testament. Even when Jesus is speaking to the people, it's just hardly in the way that they're expecting. We set these expectations for how God's going to speak or how he should speak. And then he totally kind of subverts those. I mean, in the the name of the challenge, the still small voice is taken from that, that episode with Elijah, right, where he's he's driven to the cave and he's waiting to hear God's voice and there's the wind and the fire and the, all this loud kind of expression that it seems powerful enough to be God, but it's not God. It's in the still small voice. So when you, when you read that passage in scripture or when you just kind of think about the, the biblical narrative and we see these different expressions of God speaking, but in a different way, what does that mean for us right now?
1: Yeah, yeah so that passage, it's worth, if you guys haven't read that, it's First Kings 19. It's worth reading that section where God speaks to, or God presents himself to the prophet Elijah. We, you know, we, the, theophany is the theological word for when God kind of manifests in a strong sign. And we remember the burning bush or, or the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of flame. We're always kind of looking for those big moments where God breaks in to give us an answer, or we just know he's there. And, and the point of that passage that you guys chose so well for this five day challenge is that the, the, the prophet himself, he sees the mighty wind, he sees the earthquake, he sees the fire. But the text actually says God was not in the mighty wind. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the fire. And after all these huge signs pass by, the, the prophet just hears a tiny whispering sound or a tiny small voice, a still small voice. And then he says at that moment, he recognized the presence of God. He covered his face, went to the mouth of the cave and he worshiped. So the, the, the word, the lesson for us right there is our our tendency is not surprising. It's, it's a tendency to look for the big signs and to want them. But what's surprising is that, that God typically isn't in those. Sometimes he will be. Sometimes God will break in and speak a clear word. We'll hear something from the heavens or a very, very vivid moment where someone says, God is inviting me to speak this to you. And, and it might very well be the word of God spoken to us. But more often, it's just this this really quiet stillness that, that kind of reverberates from within. And I think maybe the most important thing we could say on the front end of this whole thing is that it, it, it's my opinion. And I, by experience as well, I observe this when God speaks to us, he typically doesn't speak in words. And that might be like one of the hardest things to grapple with. Now we have the word of the scripture and we do have like interlocutions moments where there is a word from God, but typically the way God is speaking to us is, is so subtle that it's it's vocal, it's, it's beneath words. And so we almost need to learn a foreign language or, or to, to, to listen and think differently. If we're going to approach a God who's actually always speaking to us, it's just that it's it's often in the silence and it's often wordless. But we don't expect that. We come to it expecting words. And so we don't hear the words and we think that God has left us in the lurch or has abandoned us or doesn't care enough to speak into our situation. So I think that's where we're going to go. We're going to talk more about like searching for God in the silence and what it is to really acquire a new set of ears or acquire really like a, an ability to speak or listen in a language that isn't the, the spoken English language that we all grew up with, because God just doesn't engage that very often.
0: Yeah, so let's lean into that because that's exactly where we want to go. We want to get into if we can agree on the premise and the truth that God is constantly communicating to us, then if he's constantly communicating, then there must the 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 logical conclusion is then he's giving us he will equip us to hear him. But here being a very different um, thing than what we think of you and I having a conversation. We, we think we need to hear the voice of God. And like you just said, that it will be in some language that we understand or some, some words, something very clear or something so dramatic that it can't possibly be interpreted as anything other than God. So let's lean into that. Um, you, you just You made a really dramatic point there. You said God doesn't speak in words. So if he doesn't always speak in words, not that he doesn't occasionally, but if the majority of the time he's speaking at maybe not a lower level, but actually a, a more transcendent level than we are accustomed to living in, w- break that open for us. Because there's a thousand different directions we could go in that. And I want to yeah. get to the practicals of how you actually live in that mode. But just could you just describe a little bit more about what you're talking about there? Yeah, I think some of
1: the best language we can use here, Pete, is, is to say that there's actually uh, there's a language of the heart or, or there's a way that God speaks by, by movement and, and what I mean by that is you named it here that, that the God is sort of always communicating and we know that we know that because he's sustaining creation in existence our theology reminds us that the minute God wants to to end our existence here in the flesh he just withdraws the breath of his spirit from us and so that every moment we're alive God is as it were choosing to keep us in being God is sustaining us in being so there's this reality that that constantly, um, every moment of every day is is God's choice to keep creation in existence and to keep us within it. And so, in a sense, God is always communicating. the, the yeah. choice of our existence. and then the choice of of being so involved in the rest of creation is to arrange it in a manner that ideally will will conduct us toward the type of fullness or, or life in Christ. That, that is the fulfillment of the human person. Learning that though is, is again, not vocal and often not very linear in terms of like our linguistic understanding. And so we have to really learn to, to listen to the heart or to almost see and hear um, with a different sense, like an, like an inner sense. And, and the challenge there is, is really to learn to cultivate a sort of inner disposition to this, this sub vocal language of God, which is, is typically by, by movement. That God moves us, uh, as it were, toward his plan or he draws us or prompts us toward his plan. And so a word from God might very well just be like a surge toward some goodness or a, a revulsion uh, from or away from something that stands in the way um, of, of where he wants us to go and ultimately what's what's going to fulfill us. So it's like underneath it. It's almost like learning. I don't know if you've been scuba diving. But I, um, I went scuba diving several times while I was on this kind of run away from God uh, around the world. And what I noticed was that, like, up at the surface, you on the boat, you see the, the surface of the sea and you see the waves, and it's quite beautiful. But you put on all your gear and you drop in. And, and the minute you drop beneath the surface, like, everything changes in terms of the senses. You can't hear with your ears the same way. There's still sound, but it's like muffled. Um, movement is much slower, the medium is, is denser. Um, there's also not the ability to speak. You can't speak. But, but what you see is like a whole new world that, that up at the surface, you could see the ocean from the surface. As soon as you get underneath the surface, you have the reef, you have the fish, you have all kinds of seaweed and kelp and rocks. And it's this whole dynamic that was actually there the whole time, but, but couldn't quite be perceived up at the top. And that's really, I think, a great image for the interior life, that when we um, when we live uh, up at the surface or externally engaging our senses, we can see. But but beneath the surface of everything is this this more beautiful and transcendent structure of of God's will, of God's sustenance of creation and God's involvement therein. And learning to sort of drop in and drop beneath the surface and look around and think differently is is what it means to, to grow in the interior life wherein we learn that there are all kinds of movements that are of God, even if they're not words, but they are words in a sense. I'm told, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm told that in Hebrew, the language for event and word are the same thing. So that that an event is a word to us, uh, or a word is an event. So that the things that are happening in front of us all day, in a sense, carry divine meaning. The Lord is interested in all of this stuff. And so what we're doing is learning to kind of, comprehend all of created existence as a part of the way that God holds things together and then works to bring them to fullness or to bring about a, a perfection upon the sculpture, the work of art that he's He's always refining. So it's like, it's really, a, this is actually about learning an entirely different way of existing. Mm-hmm. And that all happens within the heart and, and learning how to kind of live out of the deeper places, which demands quieting down our exteriority, quieting down our interiority, And then learning to just breathe with God or to believe that the spirit actually breathes in us. And in breathing in us, God moves us toward goods and away from things that stand in the way of our good.
0: Yeah, excellent stuff there. And I I can't wait to get into your perspective on how we actually quiet the exterior and the interior. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that a vast majority of the people who are doing this with us are here in large part because we want to. Learn how to quiet the exterior and interior. But if we if we just glance over the point you're making, though, of God's uh, design of communication, if we just kind of glance over it, it doesn't matter if we if we calm the exterior and the interior. If we don't learn how to calibrate ourselves, kind of vibrate at His touch, and learn how uh, learn the fullness of His communication style, we'll be just as frustrated because we may be in a place of solitude and silence. We may be Have stilled ourselves, but if we're not kind of if we don't have eyes to see or ears to hear, it may not matter, you know. And I think there's there's such such a critical point that the very project of creation is God's communication of something. I mean, literally, the word goes out, right, and and things are formed. And then in the incarnation, we have the Word made flesh. I mean, everything around us is communicating something. And then anything that is true, good, and beautiful. Is communicating something of God. It's a question of whether or not we have the, the potential to discern that. And I, I just think, um, I'd like you to speak for a moment more on the 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 experience of this or how emotions come into this. And I've heard you speak on experience and emotions before. And this is why I want you to go here, because I think we can either be in two poles. One, we become so reliant on the experience and the emotion that we we actually are seeking that. We are seeking some sort of experience of God or of the emotion of him, or we become so confused by them and so skeptical of them that anything that has an experiential quality or emotional experience is not worth paying attention to either. And somewhere there's a balance of life isn't a thing we experience, but it's not the thing we're trying to experience, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that's a <clears throat> great, I mean, talk about a passion of mine, the, the passions, you know, and the, the, human <laughs> person, but like what you're getting at there is, um, we find ourselves in a, um, a disordered state, that the, the fallen state of man and woman is, is is things are sort of chaotic within us. The, the language of, of Aquinas and others is that our, our faculties are at war with each other. And, and this is what Paul talks about when he says, I do not do the things I want and I do the things I do not want. That we we have desires and passions moving in one direction and then our intellect and will kind of moving in another. And that war... Is, is a sign of, of our fallen state and, and woundedness and, and the, the perpetuation of sin further complicates that. But, but kind of a, almost like an a, a amazing solution or like a non-psychological uh, and non, not even a practical solution is the fact that, that in the person of Jesus Christ who took up flesh, that war within is not happening. That, that his faculties are not at war with one another, they're, they're perfectly harmonized. So the emotions participate and respond to the intellect and the will and the intellect and the emotions all work together to move toward the good and away from the evil. So that when we grow into Christ in any sense, when we contemplate the word, when we, we carve out a, a deeper moral life or cut out some sin, when we turn our attention back to God, when we grow in likeness to Christ, um, the harmonizing feature of grace breaks into us and begins to, to pull things back together. Organizing even our desires around goods and and away from evils so that there's this real healing effect of grace that's not um, miraculous, supernatural, um, outstanding, extraordinary healing, but is the ordinary process of grace to bring about a harmony of the natural and and the supernatural. So that's a little bit of a sidebar to listening for the voice of God, except that when we come to Christ in prayer, this is what he's coming to us to try to do. He wants to, to help bring in an inner harmony an inner peace, which includes our emotions, so that within Christ, we can relate to the Father the way that, that Jesus Christ in the flesh does, and that the Son relates to the Father eternally within the Trinity. When we're at war with ourselves, when when sin has a grapple hold on our hearts, when the emotions are chaotic, when we live under anxiety and despair, it's hard to look up at God and believe that we actually abide there. But when we abide in Christ, we, we can't escape, as it were, in Christ, the gaze of the Father, because Christ only lives in the gaze of the Father. So every movement into Christ is actually moving into recognizing how we're beheld by the Father with Christ. And in that, I believe there's this thing that we can't really be scientific about. But Jesus teaches us how to, to respond to, at the level of the heart, to respond to the promptings of grace, the breath of the Spirit, the gaze of the Father. And this is it's like miraculous because it's not something we acquire or or can get super methodical about. We simply we surrender to Christ and invite him to draw us into this way of living that is inseparable from the father and the son within the heart, of, with the father and the spirit within the heart of the
0: son. Yes, that's great. Yeah. OK, so we're building something here. I like where we're going with this. Um. You, you mentioned now prayer. OK, so obviously that. Or maybe not obviously, but the the point we're getting driving at is that ultimately this communication best lived out, or most consistently lived out, maybe, is in our prayer life, is in our interior life. But let's not make an assumption right now. Let's let's before we jump into that, um, define prayer in the sense of when we say prayer now for the rest of this week. What do you want us to be thinking about?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a prime question, you know, and if maybe at the broadest level, we define our prayer as, as turning our attention toward God and, and <clears throat> lifting it off of the things that have occupied our, our attention. Many of them rightly occupying our attention throughout the active moments of the day, but learning to, in, in a special moment, uh, our sit down silent prayer to return our attention to God. A, a, a traditional phrase or language word that I love in, the, in within our theological tradition is that of recollection that a lot of the saints, and it happened several centuries ago, especially there's a lot of talk about recollection and being more recollected. You still hear the language like a day of recollection. It's a very, very important word for us to carry into this conversation, because what's behind it is the fact that we we, we aren't recollected, or recollection is to collect again, or re, we're doing something over. The day, the average day of an active life is about dispersion. Unfortunately, we disperse ourselves. We we put our attention into all different activities. We engage all different conversations. We go different places. And in each place, each conversation, each encounter, it's almost like we leave a part of our attention there or, or it's engaged us and we carry it in our minds. So when we come to moments of being quiet, it's almost impossible to be quiet internally because we're involved in all the things that the day has had before us. Yeah, yeah. Recollection is really just going back to each of those and saying, here's where I was. I draw myself back inward. This is what I engaged. It was intense for this moment. I, I lift out of that and I, I sort of pull myself back inward in order to be able to turn upward. And, and that's a simple activity of recollection. It actually, can can proceed just like that at the beginning of prayer, acknowledging the places we've been, but choosing to to draw back from those to, to like abide within knowing that the spirit dwells within and that we're inviting the spirit to turn our attention back to God. So that first really dimension of prayer has to be uh, focusing, recollecting and focusing on God and lifting our attention from uh, the created affairs that, that rightly occupy our day. When we're recollected or once we've made that sort of cognitive, intentional decision to turn back to God, then we can praise and glorify and give thanks. And sometimes that proceeds for a few moments or maybe for the entire period of prayer. We might read with scriptures, might do some Lectio Divina. I think it's to be important this week, especially because we're trying kind of a new method or a new way. It'll be very important to make sure that in your prayer, you guys, you leave some time where there is no activity, that you're not coming into a period of this prayer saying, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I hope to get out of it. Here's a question I want to address. It's rather just simply time to be with God. And, and back to this idea of God speaking beneath words, you know, uh, when God reveals his name, I am who am, or his identity, really. I am who am, not he who speaks. And uh, the, 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 the word of God, Jesus Christ, is a spoken word of the Father. But but God identifies himself as being. And, and we are, as human beings, we're, we're engaged in body and soul, essence and existence, all these composed matters. God is, uh, the, the, the scholastics tell us, is simpler than all that. God is above or transcends the complexity of the dispersed created world. And so part of getting into communion with God is being willing to, to pull ourselves back into a simpler state when we're fragmented and scattered, we're complex and our day is complexified, is pulling back inward to recollect again and to be more like God who, who just is rather than doing he is and the action follows upon the being. So we pull ourselves back in and then we just choose for a period of prayer to just do nothing and and that's super agitating for us who are so active because we're like how do i pray give me the method let me read the book teach me the passage to sit with and all those things are good but really the goal of prayer in the end is to contemplate which is a wordless beholding and being beheld which which occurs where where two hearts become one or we sort of drift into the pure being of god and discover ourselves more perfectly there as as beloved to him as creatures Uh, pouring forth from his um, uncontainable and immense love that's always trying to pull things back together for us and unite us to the simplicity of being rather than being fragmented and doing. So to boil that down to super concrete simplicity here, there has to be a period of time in the prayer where you're just not doing anything and where you're just content to, to sit there without words. But the sitting is not passive, nor is it empty. It's attentive. In the sitting in silence, we're just intending God. We're turning our our mind, our will, and if if possible, our emotions just toward considering the Lord, who's always considering us. And that is what it is to sit in the gaze of God and to return it. This is what the definition of adoration is. And we sit in this adoration, which may be Eucharistic, but it can happen within the heart. And in that moment, in that season, that time, we actually step out of time and we, we commune more perfectly with God who is. That we don't have to do anything, we have to be. And the being is focused on God, recognizing him as our origin, our destiny, our everything, our all. And we, we recenter life on God or we strive to, to place our lives in God. And that, for each of us, doesn't have a methodology. There's really no advice I can give you or no like words we can put to it except to say our desire has to be to, to, to place ourselves in God and to rest there. And to let him receive us in the divine embrace and hold us for whether it be one minute or one hour of simply abiding with the Lord underneath words, believing then that what he does is communicate himself to us by rearranging the inner chamber of our hearts, by by bringing our passions, our intellect and will into communion, by drawing out the image of Christ in us. And when we pray this way, we're actually being changed so much that we, we don't notice it, but we become more responsive to the good in the world and more equally responsive in the opposite direction to the evil in the world, so that we start gradually, when we practice this regularly, we start to acquire a new way of being, where we just sort of trust the the inner promptings of the heart. We trust that we are abiding in Christ so profoundly that He is He's moving us throughout the day, toward and away from, uh, upward and not downward. And he's just we recognize that this language of God is it's the word of God is like the the air around us that we're just breathing it all the time. And we don't have to calculate or be methodical. We have to surrender to it and let it carry us, which is what we call life in the spirit that comes about through profound contemplation, which is just silence in being with he who is rather than filling the air with our words and demanding that he do the same in return. So we crest upon the mystical there. I know that's...
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, should we just like stop for the week? I think there was enough there to, to unpack for the rest of my lifetime. Uh, that, was, that, was, that was awesome. Um, but I see, I love where this is building, right? You're talking about God communicating in some ways all the time, but in a way that transcends or subverts our normal modes of communication. And then what that... What then you're saying then is the solution to living in that communication is contemplation. That persistent lived reality of of being in the gaze of the father and letting kind of his gaze so transform us that it becomes our gaze. (laughs) And then we actually then, as we move about the rest of our active life, we're moving as Jesus would. We actually are capable then of being Jesus to the world as we are called to be. And the way Jesus moved throughout his entire life was, what? I only do what I see the Father doing. My, my food, my drink is to do the will of my Father. Like he was capable of, 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 of actually living that life because he spent he was totally in union with the Father. He abided with the Father and then was able to go live as the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so contemplation then, is not just something then for the, the most radical of saints. Uh, in fact, somehow all of us are called into this deep contemplation and we're, we're getting a promise. We're getting to obstacles to contemplation because that's ultimately what we're going to talk about with the noise, but just what you just described is unbelievably beautiful, but somebody could be listening and saying that's unbe- unbelievably beautiful. I I've never even come close to tasting that, nor has anyone even invited me into it. You know, I was I, I was very tempted to just ask the question, like, why don't we teach this? You know, like, why is this not a regular part of, of a catechesis in sacramental prep? Because what you just described is such a compelling life compared to the, the droll, dry prayer that we're presented most of the time growing up. So I'm not going to ask you that question because that's going down a whole different slippery slope. But I just want, can you keep unpacking contemplation a little bit more so that the normal people out there... <laughs> I'll count myself included. I'll even count you included. Yeah. The normal of us. How do we, how do we actually live that? What does that look like to, to foster a life of contemplation?
1: Yeah. So let me, the first thing I want to say there, Pete, when you called mm-hmm. that beautiful and your response to that and anybody listening, if you, if you heard in that something that was just beautiful to you, it's beautiful because it's true. Yeah, you know, yeah, the man. reason that it speaks to us is not because it's a nice idea and we wish it were so it moves us deeply because that's mm-hmm. actually the structure of, of human nature. When it's blessed by the gift of grace, we're drawn into a living that it transcends the reality and the limits of, of the earthly, like the, the constraints of earthly existence. So it moves us because it's just true. Getting to that truth is, is really all about, and this whole conversation actually is all about becoming more human. Hmm. understood human understood in the light of, of the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God and meant to share in that kind of life. You talked about what this, this culminates in our living, living Christ. This is Paul, Galatians two, right? It is no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. And that crucifixion in Christ is a big part of, of actually what we're going to get to here, which is talking about the removal of obstacles to contemplation, contemplative living, recollected living, just praying or living prayer. (laughs) Yeah, like it's it's this is the essence of the Christian way, and and there would be a good number of answers. One road we could go down, maybe we will in uh, in the Q and A. But the evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience are are really prime, uh, very practical considerations for removing the obstacles to to perfect charity in our lives. And so they relate to uh, the disposition of heart that we need to to live in. Um, but I, I would before that, maybe I'd, I'd just like to point out that. First off, this reality, you named it also well, Pete, it's not reserved to monks and nuns who are cloistered, though they, they ought to be the experts for us. And, and their writings are always a witness to us of what happens when you go deeply into that way. But it's given to, to all of the baptized to pray deeply. And, and what I find so wonderful and exciting about it is that because God has chosen to take up his dwelling within us, this type of contemplative gaze or abiding in the gaze it's, it's, it's not something that exists only in our churches and in our monasteries and on the mountaintops. Real contemplation is something that's happening in the depths of the heart. And so it can happen like within us at any moment. Like We only need a, a couple of seconds in a day to pause, to quiet down, to turn our attention inward, not to gaze at ourselves, but to know that the, the inner chamber of the soul, and this is the Carmelites especially, is claimed by God. It's his dwelling place. So we're not so much when we want to hear God, we want to see God. We're not so much searching out there, again, in the signs, but also in the activities and the places we go. We have to be seeking God within. And and a part of that is moving through the layers of the heart that are more superficial and exterior, which are cacophonous and and loud and distracted, pressing gently through those to come to that inner room that Matthew 6 speaks of, where, where Jesus tells us that there's this little place in the center of the soul where the father sees us in secret. And, and that's our cloister, that's our cell, that's, that's the, the very core, that's the heart. And that's where we, we discover God. And we begin to learn that from within us, he's sort of pulsating outward, the type of guidance that is a constant language about how we ought to live and how we ought not live. And so it's learning to sort of live in our deep hearts. Getting there, practically speaking, requires the cultivation of a, a sort of silence which is exterior, but also interior. The exterior one's easier. Like we can find a way to like get into a room in the house where we can close the doors and the windows and not hear as much from outside. But when we get there, the loudest thing we find is always our heart because we have so much going on. You know, We've just been scrolling through our feed. We've got seven tabs open on the browser. We've got six apps going on the desktop and we're doing seven things at a time. So the mind is scattered and fragmented which again is why that practice of of recollection of pulling back from all those places to just be and then turn to the Lord, that's an imminently practical spiritual practice that when we when we sort of learn it well in our sit-down quiet time, we can undertake it rather quickly, even at the office or down in the basement or you know in the kitchen with like a two-second pause, like <sighs> recollect, draw inward, look upon the Lord. I see you, Lord, I love you. And just sit there for a moment and then go back outward. And we're sort of dipping beneath the surface in order to make sure that that depth is always brought up into the surface. A little more to say maybe about that interior silence or cultivate. Yeah, please.
0: Yeah. That's where, that's where I was going next. You're, you're right on time. There you go. Go for it. Yeah, It's
1: key because that's the hard one. And um, there's a great book I was reading. I was sharing with you earlier, Pete, it's called silence. And it's a, it's not the one by Cardinal Seurat it's older. And it's written by a command hermit. And he was giving these talks to his brother hermits about the importance of of cultivating an inner uh, docility and responsivity to the divine prompting. And he said, to do this, we have to be attentive to the way we engage all of our senses. And notice like, when I eat, how do I eat? Do I just like eat whatever I want or do I just taste everything that I can? Do Do I indulge a lot in sensory pleasures? If so, my senses of the eyes, the ears and the mouth are sort of scattered. And, and noisy. They're, they're always seeking after more goods. And so it's harder to quiet down. And this will stir the mind to think more about what's my next meal? What's my next conversation? What song am I going to, to turn on as soon as this quiet time is over? He says we sort of have to push back a little bit on that and sort of mortify the senses. Like, I'm not going to listen to music for a day uh, to observe what that does to my inner silence. I'm going to abstain or fast today or mortify my taste, maybe just choose blander foods, or, or leave aside some of my favorite items throughout the day to notice, like, does this free me up to be more attentive to things that I can't see? Uh, I'm going to limit maybe my screen time, or the amount of things I have open on my desktop, or even on my phone, like just one thing at a time, noticing as we do these things, we become more focused. And this mm-hmm. is how we always lived before technology, And I'll tell you a a quick example of where I see the difference really manifest. I do a lot of work with Mother Teresa's sisters. And I just was out on retreat with them in the Bronx. And the talks we're giving, I was giving some talks with uh, my friend, Sister Miriam. We would speak for an hour and a half straight. And the sisters could be completely tuned in the entire time without drifting off, without wandering off, without breaking attention span. And I was like, what is that? And I think it honestly comes from the fact that they live a very, very poor life. They don't have any technology. There's no TV in their houses. They don't even have mirrors in their houses. Ladies, imagine that, like no mirror. Uh, they, they don't have many of these things that are, are contributing to our scatteredness. And so they're just able to tune in and attend and, and really behold what's happening in front of them. Now, we're not supposed to live that way unless God calls us to it, but we can learn from them like, okay, when someone has carved out a certain freedom around all of their senses, they're more able to attend to the person as well as the event And ultimately, and always to God, who is within the person and within all of the events. And so they have an easier time entering in. And I just think it's worth for all of us asking, like, how do I engage my senses? What am I, how how am I letting my mind run fast or free? How am I letting myself just do whatever I want instead of sort of disciplining my will? How am I loading up with all this stuff that kind of is loud interiorly? And if there's a lot of that, I can get concrete and I can set up a sort of daily plan. I'm going to do a little bit less of this. I'm going to carve this out. I'm going to give that up. And it's not toward negation—the idea of just like suffering more. Yeah. It's actually toward disposing us to to attend better to that which can't be seen, but which is even more real and is beneath everything that can be seen. To to walk by faith and not by sight.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's a kind of a I think we we're we're all aware of the noises in our life. I th- I think it's it's the rare person who's not kind of aware that things are threatening their attention. And that most people I talk to are pretty aware that we are scattered, you know, the, the tabs on the screen or the the I'm entering the silence but I'm going to have a song playing in the background just because I don't want to be like too silent or you know or even the examples that you gave of just being scattered in our thinking. I think I think a lot of people would raise their hand if they if you ask them, do you live that way? And then I think what would also be interesting is it's not usually very difficult to think of ways to counteract that. Like Some of the examples you gave are are not like radical in their uniqueness or their creativity. It's like, but what's radical is the decision to actually do that and to have the discipline and even like the the developed skill to choose that consistently, which would then develop into a a sort of virtue to be able to to choose those things. I think what... And so I don't want to put that aside and say, like, that's not as important because it is really important to actually make those decisions and then live in those and develop the disciplines to, to do the things you were talking about and to just get real with yourself. You know, like if you have a, if you have an issue with spending too much time on Facebook on your phone, well, delete Facebook off your phone, you know, which is ironic because we invited everyone to join our Facebook group, but you get the point. Like if you have issues with these things, there are some very practical things. I think the the, the areas that sometimes are less obvious and therefore less obvious to know the solution to are the, the noises that come from a wounded heart where we have wounds in our lives that were either self-imposed through sin or some decisions we've made or some sort of external thing that has deeply cracked and splintered our heart and we carry that either with no knowledge of it or just where we experience the symptoms of that but don't know quite how to um, deal with the the root causes of that can you speak to the noise that comes from from a broken or wounded heart
1: yeah it's that's a great question It'd be a- Another huge topic, but just yeah. to be kind of succinct about it, I mean, what, what a wound is, and, and even physically, when we're sick, there's a the body or the soul are telling us that there's disorder here, that that's something that used to be here, order or health, has been uh, put asunder. And so a, a broken heart is actually a fitting expression, even if it's a little bit cliche, and we see it on you know Hallmark cards, when a heart has been broken... Something has been uh, pressed upon us that is not good, does not reflect God, is not of God, is is rather divisive instead of commutative and unitive. And so things have been put asunder. Things have been uh, broken into pieces. And so when our our hearts are broken, when when our lives are broken, be it by our own sin or by the sin of other people, we uh, we are automatically going to be less recollected and even less able to recollect because we, in part, struggle against those broken parts and say, well, I'm only partly good and this part of me is wicked. And so I don't deserve to attend to God or I can't hear God as I try to attend to God. So there's all these layers that are compounded by the fact that where there's evil, there's also the voice of evil and that the liar, his favorite place is to be also rather silent around the spots where sin has entered in. And he'll continue to, to kind of reinforce those fragmented, divided parts. And, and the conversation about healing is obviously it's something I'm passionate about be another conversation, except to say that we can't really have a good theology of healing that is separated from contemplative prayer, that, mm-hmm. that it's in prayer that we commune most intimately with the God who reveals himself to be a healer. And you can't read the gospels without seeing this throughout every one of the gospels. When Christ is coming to the crowds and coming to the individual people, he's, he's pulling them back together and he's putting together what was scattered and broken. And so just to, to be comfortable, I think, especially in those quiet moments of prayer, admitting the sort of inner chaos and maybe even our fear of the inner chaos or our fear of um, what we might find if we actually do quiet down. There's mm-hmm. This is another real reality that often we're, we're actually afraid of silence. We crave it, but we're also dread dreadful. Uh, we dread the, the idea of like what might come up if I hear God's voice or if I just have to sit with myself alone. But it's precisely there that we're actually giving Christ permission to come and just put things back together. And again, he heals us in ways that we can be scientific about. There's methodology, there's a lot of good theology, there's also the working grace of miracles. But then this ordinary work that's secret in the soul, John of the Cross talks about the secret work of grace in the soul. Mm -hmm. When we sit with God alone, we let him sit down with us in in the sorrow, in the brokenness, and when he touches things, he heals them. We heard that in the gospel just the other day with the the guy who, you know, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and touched his tongue, that's really intimate. You know, that's like yeah. slightly uncomfortable to really think about it happening. But he's touching the places that were, were closed and were broken in, in away from the crowd. This is a, 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 an image for prayer, a metaphor for prayer. And what does he say? But but be opened up for thought? that he's he's actually always trying to to come into those closed places we're afraid of and gently be with us there to open them. And what are they opening us to? Engage with the community, yes, but also just the ability to return to the Lord and say, ah. I'm not trapped in that. I'm not broken beyond repair. I'm not actually wicked to the core. And I could, and indeed am able to abide in love. And, and that's what healing does. That's what Jesus does when he comes to us. That's why we can't
0: separate contemplative yeah. prayer from our
1: theology of healing.
0: All right, I wanna to get to some questions from people watching, because I can see on the chat over here that people are filling it up. But as uh, as Chris pulls up some of these questions, last question for you here. Uh, you just said something so important for the rest of this week mm-hmm. where we say we you crave, but are afraid of silence. Yeah. And this whole point of this challenge is to step into silence so that we can encounter, you know, the, my spiritual director used to say, uh, beginning of prayer, pray that the real, the real Jesus would meet the real you, you know, like just Lord, let the, let the reality of who I am meet the reality of who you are. But when you pray that, there's a there's a healthy fear of the Lord that should come on your soul, but there's also all sorts of misconceptions about what you're going to hear, what the voice of the Father sounds like, all that in in about a you know, in one of these one minute soundbite answers, could you just speak into why we should not and cannot be afraid of silence and therefore cannot and should not be afraid of the Father's voice? Yeah, I mean, it, look at like the, the the
1: first moment of the fall, like the first thing that we did was we hide. And, and we draw away from each other. So it's an innate, it's it's normal in us to be afraid of, of coming out of that. And we don't come out of that in the world like we literally, like we we cover our bodies. And there's a sense of sort of sacred division between us that keeps a, an inner room for privacy and for intimacy. But, but within us, that's the place where we just want to be honest about our embarrassment or our fears, be in awe of God. But knowing that he comes to rescue us and not condemn us, that he comes to redeem us and not to damn us. And so when we have that hesitation, just name its source. That came from sin, and that's a perpetuation of the voice of the liar or the fruit of my own sinful story. I know that voice. God says, who told you you were naked? It wasn't me. But then to to turn to the truth, be like I have to make an act of trust, which is to say I'm scared to death, but, Lord, I believe and I trust your good. So here I am. And we just let him draw us forth, and he does things that we could never have accomplished on our own, and we didn't even know how bad we wanted them but he gives them to us because because he's just that good. That's Sweet. the one-minute answer. That's good.
0: Yeah, the whole the, the whole talk could have been dedicated to that. But all right, we got a question here for you coming up on the screen. This is from Grace. What do you mean when you say the heart? Is it similar to the soul? Great question, Grace, thank you.
1: Oh man, there are like entire books written on that and because <laughs> biblical scholarship, the heart comes up all the time in the Bible. And so biblical scholars are often debating and discussing that. The Catechism talks about the heart as the the center of man. Um, it's not the the soul and the heart can be interchanged, but the heart brings with it a uh, a sense of affectivity. You know, our emotions are felt in the body, not just in the soul. And so the heart sort of sits between the composite of body and soul. It's where it's where the two meet and where we live out our our kind of deepest center. And beautifully, this is always with that question that often bespeaks a, a wanting to understand yourself better and. Like, know who am I? This is why it's the devotion to the sacred heart is wonderfully healing. To just contemplate that, like, Jesus himself revealed that he has a heart to St. Margaret Mary. And, and he wants us to understand what it is to come into his heart and understand what, what a heart is. So it's mysterious. There's no concrete answer. It sits within the person as the deep core. Christ himself lived out of uh, the sacred heart and the flesh. And, and this is always trying to come to us at that level, especially more than just superficially.
0: I think what's cool about the heart, too, is it's it's something that uh, the Lord wants to reveal to us, too. It's like a it's a special place that he has in some ways designed for union with him, that in pursuing him, he actually reveals your own heart. That the more we try to discover our own heart, I think the less we find it. But the yeah. more we we seek his heart, the more we find our heart, because he's it's I love that the, you used earlier of the Matthew six. That's that quiet place, that hidden place. That's another analogy of the heart, right? And, it, and it's, but anytime we try to we look down into ourselves to t- uncover and discover something about ourselves, we're probably we're probably not going to find it, or at least not the way that it, the fullness of it. But when we look up and into the Father's eyes and, and through the Son, then our hearts are are revealed, and we can. Oh, that's that's the place of rest. That's the place of peace. Uh, another question here, we got uh, from Facebook user. I like that. Should there, or is there always peace after God speaks to us in prayer?
1: Yeah, beautiful question. And there's a lot St. Ignatius in the Ignatian tradition has, has talked about a lot of like discernment of spirits and kind of the, the key principle, basically those, we look at the fruit, you know, and, and the, the demon doesn't really give us peace, not lasting peace. Um, the Lord tends to lead the heart by peace and will also do so by moving us away from things that cause agitation, anxiety, tension, eventually, uh, grave, vicious fear and despair. So typically, there would be an immediate sensation, but but often it's all very gentle and, and sort of tender and fragile. And so we just look at the fruits. If there was an inspiration in prayer to engage a conversation with someone we haven't talked to in a while, or take up some devout practice that we've been thinking about, but never had the courage for, we we kind of follow up on the fruit of the prayer, and we observe its fruits. And if it brings us to a place of greater peace, serenity, joy, tranquility, integrity, then all of that is a sign that this is God's voice. Peace would be the most observable of those, though often it's it's a very subtle peace in the midst of kind of a loud existence. And so again, we're learning just to settle down and, and look for that and observe it within us. Maybe something important that I'd add here too, Peter, because touching on what you were saying as well. This, all this stuff, we're putting words to great mysteries And and the mysteries are incarnate in each of us personally, such that I'm convinced that there that if I heard the way that God speaks to you, I maybe wouldn't even recognize that as the voice of God, because the way he speaks to me is so woven. Not just with like my natural generic human senses and generic human intellect, it's woven with how I am, who I am, and my heart is unrepeatable. My existence has never, there never has never been another Father John, there never will be again. So there's this deeply personal reality to the way that God speaks to us and the way we hear Him that we can only offer each other counsel to a certain degree. And then we sort of have to bow down in reverence before the other, as they they acknowledge their growth in in learning to live in the spirit and listen for God, because God only speaks to us within the context of who we actually are. Each of us is unrepeatable in a way. We could say the voice of God is unrepeatably personal, and He speaks to each one of you in a way that is only for you, and, and you hear God, and we'll learn to hear God better and better in a way that's just yours and His, because. The dialogue of love between God and the soul is actually just that intimate, deep and personal. And so there's this great adventure about, as you said, mm-hmm. learning yourself, getting to know yourself, which is also getting to know how God speaks to you, not as a generic human person, but deeply personally. And I just find that enthralling. I mean, Cap, is so exciting, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, and I find it very humbling, too, to think that the Lord doesn't just have some generic method of communication Uh for the for all of humankind, but actually takes the time, if you will, takes the the effort to communicate uniquely. And then in his divine wisdom, he communicates uniquely and communally. So then you have things like the sacraments, where he's he's drawing all of us together to to in a united way experience his gaze, which is also what we need because we're deep, deeply human. If it was just subsetted, you know, if each of one of us was just this, this own little You unit on the path towards union with God, that wouldn't work either. So there's this beautiful mystery of the the individualization and personalization within the context of uh, a a grand story and experience that we're all drawn into. Um, Yeah, good stuff. Do we have have more questions here? Perfect compliment there, man. That's awesome. Sweet. All right, here we go. We got another question. This is from Emma. Oh, hey, Emma. How do you know, How do we know if good movements, promptings are of the Lord or our own desires or thoughts? Does this simply become clear with experience, or will it require further discernment? All right, you're talking to the discernment master here, so go ahead, yeah, discernment man. And
1: it's, man. it's, very crushing, and it's um, the 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 trick answer, or the answer you wouldn't expect, is actually lies in the life of virtue. That yep. when we are um, cultivating virtuous living, we are uh, the, the virtues are bringing that inner harmony. That, that Christ experiences, where the emotions and the intellect and the will all fit together, as it were. And so the life of virtue actually leads us to sort of begin to to trust what we're hearing or what's happening within us, such that um, eventually, when, when we're living very virtuously, the gifts of the Spirit have no impediment to reaching all the way down to the deeper and lower faculties of, of men and women, so that um, God is able to inspire our imagination and and prompt our intellect by wisdom. And we can actually uh, move in a way that is beyond, as Aquinas says, beyond the rule of reason, beyond what we understand by our own faculties. So there are times when God will inspire us by giving us or by by moving our imagination or our thoughts toward the things that he wants us to move toward. And this is participation in through wisdom in the divine intellect. So reliance on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but the gifts of the Holy Spirit also depend on um, a virtuous inner chamber so they can get all the way to the bottom. And then. You don't have to be quite as uh, clear about like, is it me or God? If the fruits are good and it continues to bear good fruit is not leading us towards sin, doesn't contradict any revelation, anything we know to be true. It's kind of like both sometimes. Like God will <laughs> speak in me and it might feel like feel like me, but it, and it is me, but it's God inspiring or prompting me. The, the actual language, we call them promptings of the Holy Spirit. In, in the Summa, Aquinas talks of the instinctus spiritus sancti. A prompting sounds like it's from the outside, instinctus. It's like an inner, it's an instinct for the spirit. And when we're virtuous. There's no impediment to that happening. And so it's it's both and, in a way, God and me, or me in God, being moved as Christ is moved toward the Father, Christ moves toward the Father.
0: Yeah, and remember St. Paul uh, yeah. says, do not despise prophecy. Test everything, hold fast to what is good. Yeah. What's implied in that is, is a degree of movement. One of the things the spirit does in us, as John Paul II said, the church on pentecost was a was a church born on the move that one of the primary roles of the holy spirit is to to kind of inspire action and movement and so it's a little bit it's you know discernment i would even i'm sure you encourage those discerning the religious life or the priesthood it's like if you're feeling prompted towards this or the instinct towards these things well do something about it you know like test it see if it's good you know live the life for a time or you know do some go on a discernment retreat or and that's kind of on the big V vocational level level, but just in the daily instincts of the spirit to um, give yourself permission even to trust that the Lord is speaking to you, is leading you, and to to test. not you don't put God to the test, right? You put the moment to the test, if you will, to to put the instinct to the test. and again, if it's producing fruit, why would we stand in the way stand in the way of that? or why would we back away from that? you know? Amen if we find ourselves increasingly
1: attracted to good things, we should let ourselves move toward those good things. Exactly <laughs> yeah. how God needs us. And they might demand a lot of us, you know, like right. deep conversion is a good thing. It's going to cost us. But when it becomes more attractive to us, again, big V, small V, whatever, it's good to move toward goods. And, and God will increasingly, um, he'll, he'll increase our taste for goods and our distaste for, for wicked things. And we just have to learn to be willing to be moved by that. And to choose to move with that inner prompting or the desire for growth and excellence and the goods that lead us toward that and a distaste for those other things that stand in the way of our growth.
0: Awesome. All right. I think we have time for one more question. Let's do this one. Can we also learn to hear God when we are unable to escape noise like a soldier in combat zone or emergency room response in a disaster? That's that's a great question.
1: Yeah, prime question. Extremely practical. And all the principles we've laid out actually could just be put uh, into application for that question, That's right. uh, are, are familiar with, through the interior life, familiar with how God uh, speaks in, in the personal way that he does to me or you. And we're, we've kind of cultivated in moments of peace this awareness of the, the breath of the spirit, how it moves. And when we're, we're living a life of virtue so that everything is disposed to these promptings, we, on the fly, we just need a millisecond to be like okay like we can literally like take the decision or the question and like one breath with it and we just have a certain sense about which of the two options is better or which of the two options is just has a certain taste or flavor for us that the other doesn't and that is in part the way that the mature soul is guided by god's word and we can be doing that on the fly all the time though it demands of us when we're not on the fly a deep interior life and and the life of virtue cultivated all throughout and that's all in place we're, we can run on the battlefield and, and be animated by the spirit in the worst of things in the, in the ER, out in the car accident scene, like wherever we go, chaos of our family with kids running around, we can be moved by the spirit and we know what it means to move by the spirit without needing to sit down and process. We just trust. Some of the, the great writers on Aquinas will talk about a spontaneity of heart in the virtuous, the absolute virtue. They just, they trust the movements of their heart because they've gotten so acquainted with how God moves and how God doesn't move. So they know the difference And when they feel prompted to make a quick decision on the fly, they just know which is which because they're so familiar with the voice of their beloved cultivated within and cultivated through the life of virtue.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. I, my wife and I, uh, I've been introducing her to band of brothers. So, you know, I watched it, I think like 47 times in college. Right. But she didn't. And so we've, I've just been like strategically helping her understand me by helping her understand Dick Winters and the whole company, you know, but to this question, like, the reason they could respond on the battlefield to each other and with hand signals and with glances to know what each guy should do was because of the time spent training, running up and down pure and doing the whole thing together created the environment for that spontaneous in the, the heat of battle, being able to immediately know what the others should be doing. And, and it also draws to mind on a more theological level, you know, being faithful in little things, the Lord will then allow you to, to, to bigger things. And so like, the more we're faithful in the consistency of prayer and the small still times of prayer, the more we'll have to draw on uh, when those big moments come. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Preach. All All right. right. Well, Hey, day one of the still small voice challenge is is wrapping up here, but father John, it's been a pleasure. I could have done this for another couple hours. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I was thoroughly, my notebook is, is, (laughs) <laughs> Chicken scratch at this point, but full of notes. I just so appreciate you taking the time today, the, the depth of your wisdom, and uh, just sh- sharing your heart with us today. I, uh, thanks very much.
1: Amen. Gift to be with all of you. May this I'll be praying throughout these five days and joining you guys in that. But, yeah, let's let this actually be something that isn't just a set of talks and ideas, but, but gets all the way to the core. Because God's always trying to change us. and He wants to transform us in grace. And we're the only thing, really, that tends to stand in the way. So let's do this.
0: Amen. Amen. All right. Father John, thanks so much. God bless you. All right, that was Father John Burns, like I said, from the Still Small Voice Challenge, the five-day challenge we did with ID for anyone who wanted to ignore the noise and uh, have a tangible experience of hearing the voice of God over a five-day stretch. We had several other guests throughout the week that I will be sprinkling in in the podcast because each conversation was was really blessed, and uh, I want to share it with all of you. We'll be doing more challenges in the future, so if you're interested in learning more, uh, go to idchallenges.com. The only one up there right now is the Still Small Voice Challenge, but that's where you'll find it moving forward. So I had an interesting experience uh, just, just yesterday. Uh, it was a Monday, and our team meeting, now that some of the restrictions in Michigan are a little bit looser, if you will, we decided to go to Uh, Sweetwater's Cafe in Ann Arbor and sit outside on the porch and have a coffee and have our weekly team meeting and I felt earlier in the day I had been part of a little Bible study with uh, Joey McCoy, Peter Herbeck, and Ralph Martin. We're going through the New Testament, just kind of different books at a time looking for different themes and mainly focusing on just what does Jesus say about himself? What do the scriptures say about Jesus? What's the the conditions for salvation. What is the full gospel message that we feel called to share with the world? If if uh, if people aren't coming to faith, is it a combination of not hearing it? Is it a problem with the message? Is it what's going on with that? And so we're just kind of poking around through the New Testament, trying to uncover some of what the what the apostles preached and what Jesus actually said. And so we found ourselves in the letter to the Hebrews, and. The, so that's what was on my mind, and I'm going to get to what is in Hebrews, but the strangest thing happened to me. So, our, we wrapped up our team meeting, and then uh, the team went on their way, and I decided to stay at the coffee shop for a few more minutes uh, to, to just answer some emails and whatnot. And I'm just sitting there, and I had my Bible out because uh, I had just finished part of our team meeting every week is a little inspiration from me, I guess, a little <clears throat> sense from the Lord of what He's saying to our team, and I'd, I'd use this passage from Hebrews. And all of a sudden, a guy walks by, and he glances down, and he says, Hey, what book is that? I'm referring to my Bible. And I say, Oh, it's it's a Bible. And he goes, Oh, are you a, a Christian? I say, Yeah. And he kind of just pauses and looks at me. He goes, Can I ask you some questions? And I'm not making this up. Like, talk about an evangelist dream scenario. A guy just walking by just says, Hey, can I ask you questions about Christianity? And I was like, Yeah, sit down. So we start to talk, and it was just really interesting, very interesting backstory of being raised in a Jewish family, um, coming to believe for himself that nothing uh, about what they believed was what he wanted to believe, and self-described as a pagan. He actually said, I believe in paganism. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you know, pagans. I was like, no, I don't know. Like, what what is that? And so he kind of was like, well, it's a combination of the Greek gods and Nordic gods and different things like that. And I said, all right, cool. And then I said, Do you do you believe it's true? And he said, No. I said, Well, then why do you why do you say you believe in it if you don't believe it's true? He said, Well, because I just want something to form a framework of a belief and a system to to live off of. And I just thought wow, that's interesting. Like, what, what does that mean? How, how do you ascribe to something but not believe it's true? And, we, and so that was one angle that was really interesting. And, but what became really clear as we started to, I started to press a little bit about uh, Jesus and answering my questions about the, the primacy of Jesus for salvation and him being the way, the truth, and the life, and his bold claims about himself to, to be God. At one point, I said, have you ever read the New Testament? Have you ever read the Gospels? He said, no. Because the way he was describing Christians, and it was interesting, the, his biggest beef with Catholics was that we weren't bold enough. <laughs> that we didn't stand up for ourselves enough. And he felt like we didn't really kind of uh, advocate for ourselves enough in the public square. And I thought, have you, have you read the Jesus of the New Testament? And he said, no. I said, I think you should do that. Because I think you'll find that the Jesus there is, is a little different than often what he is uh, portrayed as in the church. And I think sometimes Christians are a poor representation of who Jesus really is and what he really stands for and what he really said. And so we had this awesome conversation. I, I tried as best as possible to kind of lead him into some gospel proclamation of of who Jesus is and what he does for us and his love for us. And I asked him a question. I said, if if it were possible to meet God, would you want to? And he kind of hemmed and hawed. And and I was about to kind of say, hey, you know, would you like to pray together? Because I believe that God is here right now, that Jesus is here right now, and that he wants to have a relationship with you. And I was fully expecting to kind of have this bold moment, if you will. And he kind of abruptly just shut the conversation down, got up and left. And I just felt like, and maybe this was fear in me or whatever, but I just didn't, I didn't pursue it. I didn't, Follow after him, or that I just said, "All right, Lord. I guess that was a seed to plant." So, th- thinking of that conversation, though, was it was remarkable how that happened. Literally, minutes after I had shared this passage with my team, this is from the beginning of Hebrews. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these days He has spoken to us by a Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom, through whom. Also, he created the world. should be noted that the guy I was talking to was a PhD student in theoretical chemistry, so science was important to him. Now listen to this. Jesus reflects the glory of God. The author doesn't actually use the name Jesus here, but he reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of power. By his word of power. Upholding the universe by his word of power. It's just an incredible thing to meditate on that Jesus upholds the universe by his word of power. Literally, physically, the world is sustained by the power of God's word, that he holds everything continuously in existence. And then spiritually, the word made flesh that we feed upon sustains us, upholds us spiritually. The word of power keeps everything going. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. So I talked about uh, us feeding on the word of God as it upholds us, and then I skipped ahead to chapter two. Therefore, we must pay the closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the message declared by angels was valid and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then here's this key point. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard him. And while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So how was such a great salvation brought to the world? Three ways, three steps. Declared first by the Lord, attested to by those who heard him, and God bore witness by signs, wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. As I was sitting there with this this man, I couldn't help thinking, like, the Lord has declared something to him, even through his, his Jewish upbringing. There has been truth that has been planted in his heart, and I could see him pursuing the truth, and he had come to many appropriate conclusions. But what was lacking, and one of the reasons I think he was so eager to talk to me, was he was lacking people in his life who actually believed it, who were living a life consistent with what they believed about. He actually said to me at one point, <laughs> this was a really high compliment, he actually said, you seem really happy, (laughs) and I was like, yeah, I am really happy, and he kind of was like, well, why, like, what about, like, is it, you know, is it because you're trying to do good for the world or whatever, and I was like, no, I'm happy not just because of what God is doing right in this moment, but I'm ultimately happy, I'm ultimately joyful and peaceful because I believe uh, I know what's coming after my death, (laughs) I I went there with the death problem, right, that we're all gonna die. And I have I have assurance in Jesus Christ that salvation is possible through the forgiveness of sins that he gives us. Like, I, I'm happy, I'm joyful, because I, I believe what, what Jesus has said about those who are found in him and the hope of eternal life that comes with that. And so I think what I saw in this man and what I, I feel very convicted about moving forward is, no question, the Lord does the initial proclamation, but it is, uh, it is on us in a in a in a way through the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the salvation that He declared, that we've heard, that we believe, and then we can point to not just in a future outcome. But in the kingdom being here right now, and the way the kingdom is manifested here right now is through the supernatural movements of grace. As, as supernatural as somebody coming to faith, as a community living, as authentic Christian community, but also in the supernatural that is unexplainable. The, the blind literally getting sight, the deaf hearing, the, the lame walking, the, 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 those, those miracles, those great movements of God that we read about in the, the scriptures, but also throughout the whole history of the church. That the proclamation of the word of God comes with power. It is confirmed by God moving in a way that is understandable and um, it is both understandable, awe-inspiring, and confounding for those who hear it. But when God moves in power, it brings people to a decision point. And as I look back on that conversation with that man, I wish I could, I wish I could go back and and more quickly get to that PowerPoint. <laughs> more quickly get to that moment of saying, like, let's let's cast ourselves before the Lord who is present among us, and see how He plans to move. So it was a great moment of encouragement for me that we're, we're on the right track. Just for this, to, the Lord to just illust- orchestrate this kind of completely unexpected and random occurrence, but also a great learning experience of okay, the Lord. Um, proclaims first, I believe and I've heard, and so I need to proclaim it as well, but I not I, I can't back away from, I can't blush at the power of God that comes from this proclamation and be ready and willing to bring that into the equation as well, so that people not only are hearing the word from the Lord himself, from my lips, but also confirmed in power. Speaking of Hebrews, Let's pray for this man. His name was Dawson. Lord Jesus, break into Dawson's life in a new and more powerful way. Help him to know that you are the Lord, that you've called him, that you love him, and that he's not alone. All right, this has been the hour. I'm Pete Barak. We'll be doing more of these. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. Uh, give us a review. Give us a rating. It just helps more people come into contact with it. We're doing okay. We got some listeners. It's fun. We're going to keep doing this because we feel called to it. But it uh, wouldn't hurt if you could let some people know about it by rating it and reviewing it. You know how this works. That's just how the the algorithms work. I actually don't know how that works. Otherwise, otherwise other than I just know that uh, everything I've ever read about building a podcast, they always say, get ratings and reviews. So, there you go. That's my plug. I'm Pete Burek. This is The Hour. We'll be back soon. God bless.